We basically are asking, what is the true gospel? And next Sunday, they're going to start a series called, What is the Church? Uh, and I want to put in a plug, you know, Larry and others have done a great job with the Sunday School. It's kind of a video and discussion format and uh, really enjoyable and encourage you to participate. Uh, last month, we started a series called, What is a Man? which is a surprisingly relevant question today. Uh, in this series, we hope to highlight biblical command, principle, and example. Uh, first, let me say that I have not mastered all the things of which I will speak, nor have Christy and I practiced everything. Uh, we do have some experience, uh, but I'm going to rely upon the wisdom and insights and experience of others to guide us in the important cause of rearing biblical men. And so for today, a primary resource for uh, this topic that we're going to talk about today is a book called Future Men by Douglas Wilson. Uh, to review... Uh, Introducing the series last month, we distinguished between a male and a man, that is a biblical man. A male is any being to whom God has given an XY chromosome. Uh, so a male could be in the womb, could be 3, 23, or 73. Uh, and the age of legal majority, which is usually 18, uh, simply means that there are greater expectations legally uh, of a male. Uh, but I'm sure you understand that while we may call a legal adult a man and have man-like expectations for him, not every male starts to act like a man on his 18th birthday. Uh, it takes a little longer for some and some never do. Age does not a man make, at least not a biblical man. Uh, I explained that to be a man in biblical terms, he must exhibit at least five basic characteristics. First of all, a man must be humble. Now, though essential, humility is not sufficient on its own to form biblical manhood. Those other qualities require him to learn how to exercise self-control, protection, provision, and leadership quite generally. Our hope in this series is to look at various facets of manhood and its relationship to womanhood and childhood throughout the life cycle. Therefore, we hope that this is applicable whether you are male or female, married, single, parent, grandparent, or relative of a male or somebody who is influenced by a male or who you might influence because this is profitable for all of us. One thing I did not address in the introduction was that when we refer to the characteristics of a biblical man, we're simply saying that these are the characteristics that a biblical man will have. Uh, we do that because we believe that God as creator of mankind uh, knows better what a man or a woman should be other than any expert who may disagree. But by that term, we are not saying that one who exhibits these qualities is necessarily saved for eternity. That's a separate issue. So while one may appear to have these qualities, he may still be on the road to hell. 
This is a bit like the argument sometimes Christians have between political activism versus the gospel. Of course, the gospel is the most important issue for fallen mankind. Yet, we as Christian citizens or exiles, depending on how you look at it, must try to encourage our culture to get as close as possible to biblical values. So therefore, that requires us to be informed, to inform others, and to vote. Biblical manhood is something, as Ronald Reagan might say, raises all boats because it helps everybody, whether you're a Christian or not, and particularly it helps within the culture. Uh, It is yet, when we come back and we look at what's most important, yes, the gospel is our first concern. So I'm going to try to talk about this rather broad topic from a biblical perspective, but to fully understand and apply this teaching of necessity requires that a person know Christ as Savior in order to follow him. Uh, So if you don't feel or hear that thread throughout this series, please bring that to my attention. So today, as you might wonder, we're going to start about, we're going to talk about becoming a man, which means we're going to start with little boys. Uh, and work upward, not just in age, but more importantly in maturity or growing in Christ. One of the first things that I think I can say about little boys as we raised seven is that they are different from little girls because God made them different. Besides the obvious, an early indication to Christy and I was that When we had our first girl, she was so easily potty trained. Her three older brothers would not dare to interrupt their play just because of a little moisture. And in the winter, when it's cold, a backyard tree was even more convenient than the toilet. So uh, boys generally like to fight their battles by pretending real-life situations, especially in competition. Most of our boys were raised long enough ago that they played outside most of the time. Uh, Now, is it my imagination, or are there fewer children playing outside and even riding bikes today? Uh, You know, families like the Finstroms that ride their bikes to church are just a rarity. Uh, Some of you may remember the Flintstones. Some of you are old enough. Remember the Flintstones? That was the first 30-minute cartoon, okay? First time we had a a regularly set TV show for half an hour uh, that that was animated. And that was followed up by a show called The Jetsons, okay? And The Jetsons were a futuristic family when everybody went about in flying cars. And I remember, I don't know why, but I remember one episode when George Jetson comes home. And he complains that at work that day, he, was, he got so tired because he had to push three buttons. Well, I sometimes wonder if we're not approaching the world of the Jetsons. Boys still fight battles and play competitive games, but on screens instead of face-to-face with other boys. By all appearances, today's kids are well-trained and well-developed from the wrist down. And somehow this has prolonged boyhood. 
Yeah, perhaps that explains why there are so many signs out looking to hire these days. Last year, the Bureau of Labor Statistics released its latest data about the workforce participation rate, which is down to 62.3%. And that means that there are over 7 million able-bodied men aged 25 to 54 who have essentially opted out of working for the long term. This despite the fact that there are approximately 780,000 well-paying manufacturing jobs available. Most of these men appear to be logging about seven hours of TV and playing video games and show really no desire to change their circumstances. This does not bode well for future manhood. So before you resign yourself to placating your bored son with screen time on a regular basis, Think how that development of that habit will affect his view of manhood. Much of our current culture is not the stuff of biblical manhood. A little entertainment and a distraction is one thing. But do you really want your son, when his grandchildren ask him, what did you do in life to say that he became famous as for his gaming skills developed in your basement? So... To fill out these basic characteristics, let's start with a look at what we're aiming in rearing boys into men under a biblical lens. Of course, we're all familiar with the proverb out of chapter 22, train up a child in the way he should go, and when he's old, he will not depart from it. Well, what does it mean? What are the distinctives of training a boy to become a man? On your sheet, you'll see that the first one is labeled dominion. Men were created and called by God to rule and subdue the earth, to take dominion. While it may sound uh, macho or braggadocio, this is what is sometimes called the cultural mandate. Uh, Now, it's important that we remember what we talked about last time. And just today, we always start with humility. However, humility is hard for males. One of the funniest memories I have of my basic training at Officers Candidate School in the Marine Corps was when the sergeant instructor, which is kind of the, the, the drill instructor type, came in and seemingly for fun in, came into the squad bay and told us all to get on our backs and raise our hands, our arms and legs straight up and move them back and forth as quickly as we could, okay? So you can imagine, after a few minutes of this, out of fatigue, we started to slow down, okay? And when we had slowed down sufficiently, he said, look to your left, look to your right. What do you see? Cockroaches, (laughs) dying cockroaches. And he was right. (laughs) We did. Now, now. How could he be so demeaning and insulting? Well, do you think that it's possible that a bunch of 20-something-year-olds, fresh out of college, seeking to become officers in the Marine Corps, might be a bit prideful? In his own way, he was knocking that pride out of us and teaching us humility and submission, an essential 
in the military and in much of life. Okay, this may surprise you, but that kind of treatment is actually biblical. And it starts when a male is in his youth. Well, moms, I know you're screaming, you're not going to do that to my little boy. No, we're talking primarily about teens and up here, okay? But if you look at Lamentations 3, you will find that it says, it is good for a man that he bear the yoke in his youth. Let him sit alone in silence when it is laid upon him. Let him put his mouth in the dust that there may be hope. That reminds me of two-a-day football practices in the August heat. Let him give his cheek to the one who strikes and let him be filled with insults. Okay? Most boys will need to have that, the vice of pride, arrogance, and machismo extracted through some kind of real-life discipline in order to become a real man, which is a biblical man. So, in this discussion about taking dimension, dominion, please recall the message last month where we made the distinction between husbands taking dominion by leading with love and self-sacrifice versus males dominating their families as tyrants, likely because they never learned that first essential humility. So, whence cometh this concept of dominion? Well, if you look at Genesis 1, I'm going to read a, a little longer passage there, uh, and it starts in verse 30, 26. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish, the birds, and everything that creeps on the earth. And it was so. And God saw that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. Now, if you hearken back, if you remember, we rarely do, but if you remember from last month, I in indicated that the word man here really is indicating mankind, both male and female, because that's what the passage says in context. So how can I say that dominion is a male thing? Well, to understand this, we need to review the concept of two becoming one. Now, this is something that was accepted by our culture not all that long ago. A sage of the 60s, a guy named James, Papa's got a brand new bag, Brown. Some of you remember. Once crooned, it's a man's world, but it wouldn't be nothing without a woman. Now, James may have known it or not, but he made not a small understatement because really the world would be nothing because we wouldn't exist without a woman. But beyond that simple biological necessity, husbands and wives are biblically one, created together, equal in worth and value before their creator. 
Yet, as we've covered many times here, Genesis 2 introduces the one flesh concept after the woman was formed out of the man. Adam, after seeing and naming all the animals and seeing what they did with their mates, excitedly called her bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. And after, after God said, it is not good for the man that he should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. So the Bible makes clear that the wife is the helper, the helpmate created for the husband so that he will not be alone in his dominion work. He is to lead lovingly. She is to love and follow respectfully. The husband has the primary responsibility to take dominion, but for the vast majority of men, this task is insurmountable without the help and support of a wife. I know I need mine. Now, a man's mission as life is, does not end if he loses his wife, and there are exceptions for celibate, celibates who wholly devote themselves to God's work, as Paul exhorts a few to consider. But the general rule is clear in the Bible. Husbands lead in dominion work, but they need a wife to help take that dominion as a rule. Now, I know I'm covering old ground for many of you, but I'm just trying to trying to flesh out this one flesh concept in context because it's difficult to understand, so much so that Paul called it a genuine mystery, calling the marital relationship a type or example of Christ and his bride, the church. So if this, is, if this does not make sense, you know, please come and talk afterwards, and we'll revisit this in future messages, no doubt, but for now, that's, that's all we can go into that. Therefore, boys need to be taught not to boss others around, an excess that we find in firstborn, firstborn boys and girls. Uh, rather, boys should be encouraged to humbly take dominion by taking initiative, by leading, and by serving. But how will they learn? Well, I think this is better caught than taught. For this to catch on, boys need to be secure in what a man is by example. For that security, they need the assurance and love of a mother and a father, as well as the example of their father taking dominion over and lovingly leading his own family. Before ma children mature to the point that they understand and place their security in God, their primary basis for security is mom and dad in harmony. When When kids don't see this, when they see more and more disharmony, they become more and more insecure. Something that I experienced as a little boy in high school, and I'm seeing it in my own family right now. One of the faults that our adult children have pointed out is that Christy and I failed to teach them how to fight as a couple. And I am unsure what to think about that criticism. It's true that there is a better way to handle disagreements than screaming and throwing lamps. Uh, Les and Leslie Parrott have a humorous presentation called Fight Night that some of you may have seen, and it can be very helpful. Now, for us, it's not that Chris and I never had disagreements. We did, we still do, but we've tried to address those in private. Perhaps if we'd had the instruction from the parents, we would have done a better job of, of exemplifying how to fight. 
But one thing we did learn through the Growing Kids God's Way series that Mike talked about to help build security is what some call couch time. Now, this is not mom and dad making out in front of the kids. <laughs> Rather, this is a regular time when mom and dad sit down to talk and pray together in the view of the children so that, and with the ironclad rule that nobody can interrupt unless somebody is bleeding. Okay. So to encourage these roles, a mom can praise openly and give thanks for the hard work of her husband in providing for the family. A dad can praise his wife for her vital role that she performs in the home and affirm his love for her in, often in front of the children. Express and show affection for one another in their view. So, maybe a little smooching on the couch is okay. <laughs> Nothing affirms the confidence in God's design for men, women, and marriage better than seeing mom and dad delighting in God's good design. Nothing is more effective in building confidence in God's plan than our children seeing their parents delight in one another. Along with that example, of course, they need instruction. You know, two loving parents in the home is the first step, but it's not sufficient. Children may see dad going off to work to provide for the family and may see mom steadfastly there every day with them, but they may not realize that these roles are taught in the Bible. So in addition to reading the Bible yourself, fathers should be leading their families in what God's word says daily. Uh, before moving on, I want to put down another marker or a placeholder for future discussion. Uh, last month, as part of the message on how men are starkly different from women, at least statistically, I mentioned both the violent and destructive behavior of some men and the much greater tendency of men to avoid responsibility, especially as to children. It's my firm belief that one of the most devastating problems of our culture, one that is the genesis of innumerable social ills, is fatherless households. Other than Jesus, every child has a biological father. Yet, too often, the father either demonstrates to the mother that he is unfit to be in the household, or he just takes advantage of her God-given instinct to nurture her children while he goes about his lifestyle begetting other children with other mothers, also known as victims of his irresponsibility. Again, we're going to get back to this, but for now, suffice it to say that little boys who do not have that example of a sacrificial father loving his mother and leading his family are statistically much more likely to end up in trouble and repeat the cycle. A little girl who does not have that kind of father in the house is much more likely to look for male affection, sometimes called love in all the wrong places, with those irresponsible men, and may very well end up alone with one or more children in the same boat as her mother. So let me be clear here. I am speaking in generalities. The children of a single-parent family are not doomed it is quite possible for one godly parent or another to speak into the life of a child who does not have the benefit of the, of the second parent, whatever the reason. This was apparently the case for Timothy. Uh, his father is not mentioned, but we can infer from what uh, Paul said 
that he was raised by his mother and his grandmother, uh, Paul said, I'm reminded of your sincere faith, Timothy, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now I am sure dwells in you as well. So what a child needs in such a situation is not just a mother and another parental figure, but a godly one, one who is intentional to impart sincere, genuine faith. And for many of the situations to which I am referring now, generally, that is unlikely given that the mother chose an irresponsible male, not a man, a male to be the biological father. In other words, the mother made an unwise decision as well and often does not have the foundational faith to impart genuine faith to her children. There are exceptions, of course. Now, of course, my view may be skewed by my, by my experience in working in adoption uh, when I see so many irresponsible fathers who conceive with sometimes, oftentimes, irresponsible women. Uh, but let me caution Christian parents of girls. I have seen many very sweet, sincere, and oftentimes Christian teen and preteen mothers who inexplicably link up with an irresponsible loser of a father. This fact alone highlights how important it is for young girls to know what a biblical man is, primarily by the example of her loving and affectionate father. Single parents can make it work, but it is harder for sure. Parenting alone requires a great deal of intentionality. I think we can say honestly that as man puts asunder God's plan for one flesh in a lifelong committed relationship, the consequences grow exponentially. And some of you who worked in social work and others know this to be true all over the place. However, when a boy becomes a biblical man, he is much more likely to see his responsibility to take dominion and work with his wife to train their children to follow suit. On your outline, the next thing we want to talk about is that men are created to labor in order to provide for their households and to work for the glory of God. God made the bodies of men generally stronger for this task. So with young boys, it's vital to affirm their manhood and help them see his, his joy in service reflected uh, ref- ref- that, that his joy, his work and service reflects God's created order and design. It's not that women cannot labor, and this is not intended as a play on words. No man would trade his labor for hers in childbirth. Okay? But certainly women are capable and do many laborious things often associated with men. But men are uniquely called for such labor to provide for their families, and God has gifted men the physical strength to do so. The unique role of men was established in creation, cursed in the fall, and affirmed in the New Testament. Genesis 2, after conquering and subduing, men were raised to settle down and tend to their families. Then the Lord God took the man and put him into the Garden of Eden to cultivate and keep it. But after the fall, Genesis 3, God said, by the sweat of your face you shall eat bread. Then we jump to the New Testament, 1 Timothy 5. Paul calls Christian men who do not provide for their own worse than unbelievers. So parents should encourage their son 
to rejoice in God's good and wise gift of manhood and help him recognize the joy that comes from walking in the good of God's design in honest work. Boys should get away from the screens and out doing age-appropriate work, whether it's simple chores, helping mom in the kitchen, taking out the trash, raking leaves, cutting grass, washing windows, shoveling snow, anything to help him understand that his contribution to the family is important, and this is how he glorifies God. Working with dad can be most fulfilling. Some of our best memories are scraping, burning, the old paint off our old house, not terribly according to OSHA. Uh, And we actually, I I and my boys replaced our own roof with no experience and only hammers. We didn't do well, but we did it. All right. So teaching, you know, basic skills like if you have any, you know, plumbing and yard work and how to safely change the oil is a great way to create these basic skills. I even changed the oil one time with one of my daughters. Uh, Likewise, parents should look for opportunities to encourage their girls to help with caring for their younger siblings and gladly serve around the home. They can affirm them with, well done, honey. I'm so glad that God made you a girl, and you're going to make a great mom someday. Let me be clear here. It's not wrong for a girl to do what is usually a boy's job. Some of you only had girls, so they had to. And likewise, it's not wrong for boys and men to do stuff like feeding the baby or help with domestic chores. I think most husbands would agree with any experience at all that things go much better when you volunteer to help out with these kinds of things. Before we figured out a better way to respond to crying newborns, Christy took the primary duty with the God-given equipment to bring quiet with midnight feedings. You didn't get that, but think about it. But if the crying resumed shortly thereafter, I would often get an elbow and a not-so-subtle hint that it's my turn to take a duty shift of walking around or rocking the baby. Now, I wish we'd understood this back then. After such a night, when both mom and dad are yawning at the breakfast table, mom can ingrain this parental cooperation into boys by thanking dad for his nighttime help. Uh, before going forward, I want, I've, I've used a lot of this already, I want to say a little bit about stereotypes. In the 60s, we were taught that all stereotypes were evil, and what they meant was casting all people into one pot based upon appearances. For example, uh, back then, I don't know what you call them, knuckle-draggers or rednecks in the 60s, which is a stereotype itself, uh, they might say, well, all them hippies or males with long hair are drug addicts, even those Jesus freaks. Never you mind what I'm doing down at the honky-tonk. All right, so clearly overly broad an over-stereotype and probably hypocritical. But for a short moment, let me give a defense of stereotyping, a kind that we all use of necessity. While we should always avoid communicating to others that a generalization is a permanent label for all, we all make general judgments based upon what we can perceive as generally true from our own experience. Biblically, Paul agreed with a Cretan prophet who stated, quote, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. That's Titus 1. 
Now, presumably that prophet, that Cretan prophet, did not include himself in that stereotype, which Paul considered to be generally true. Jesus himself spoke of the Pharisees as a class or a stereotype because most of them were hypocrites who he rightly condemned. Uh, This even though not all were, like Nicodemus who came to be instructed about regeneration and Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God. And he provided a tomb for Jesus' body. The point here is that generalizations and stereotypes are part of our thinking process when viewing the world in general. The limit to their usefulness is in specific cases. Uh, We exceed the boundaries of proper generalization when we say that all boys have or should have the same gifts, talents, or interests. Not all boys are built to play football or are gifted to fix things. Some boys are poets and musicians. Not all girls love crafts. Some girls may be gifted at fixing things and may compete athletically. We need to be careful not to demean or discourage our children's gift exploration and recognize instead that such exploration is normal, an important part of their development. Imagine what you would have felt like as young David as his brothers went off to war with the Philistines while he stayed back with the sheep, the dumb sheep. His father didn't even invite him to meet with Samuel. Probably thought, surely the youngest, the songwriter. Uh, How could he ever be a king? But God saw things differently, and he told Samuel, you know, man looks on the outward, but the Lord looks on the heart. So, little advice here, please let's all avoid over-stereotypes. Our general goal here is to teach biblical masculinity to boys and femininity to girls. And that is a stereotype, a legitimate one. And viva la difference, okay? Used to be that was a good thing. Clearly, God gave wives the general calling to be helpers and mothers and the vital role to manage the home. As with men, the unique role of a woman was established in creation, cursed in the fall, and affirmed in the New Testament. Speaking of the New Testament instruction on wives, it's hard for me to imagine a more surefire way to get an angry response than to dare to say that moms should be keepers at home. But that's exactly what Titus 2 says. One way to put it is that the husband is the head of the home, but the wife is the heart of the home. It's not wrong for a wife to work outside the home to contribute to the household income. Sometimes that's a necessity. However, a newer car or a backyard pool is a preference, not a necessity. Some moms have the ability to work remotely from home or to run their own own business. The only thing I, I would say is I caution that a husband and wife evaluate according to priorities. If that work has taken priority over marriage, or the children, it is likely time to cut back or put boundaries in place. As I mentioned, Christy contributed to our household financially by saving us several hundred thousand dollars in school tuition. 
But our most valuable contribution was being there on a day-to-day basis to first nurture and then help me train up the children while we sat in our house, walked by the way, while we lied down and rose up, uh, as it encourages us in Deuteronomy 6. Yeah, this is not a popular message. And if this is challenging to you, as it is for many in our culture today, Please just think about this question and answer it to yourself. What possessions, what wealth, what job or career is more important than to personally train and nurture your own children daily to delight in God's choice of their calling as a boy or a girl and to shepherd them towards a personal and saving relationship with Christ for eternity. Let's move on. A man, a biblical man, must protect and deliver. Our example, of course, is Jesus Christ, whose deliverance was promised in Genesis 3, describing the fall of mankind into sin in the garden. The serpent tempts Eve. God asks Adam what happened. He blames Eve. Then he blames God, who gave him this woman, Uh, God asks Eve what she has done, and she blames the serpent. And so, starting in verse 14, The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He, her offspring, shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his head heal. It is in this curse of the serpent that we find salvation. Jesus came, first of all, to destroy the works of the devil, also known as the serpent. We could say that Jesus was a serpent or perhaps a dragon slayer. The offspring of the woman is referred to in the masculine, so followers of Christ are like lesser dragon slayers, So it's important that growing boys see themselves as young dragon slayers, perhaps with plastic or wooden swords or play guns. I recall that uh, we used cardboard boxes for archery. We set up a machine gun nest in our bushes uh, with wooden weaponry. We defended our tree fort with grenades that somehow resembled walnuts. Uh, And thinking about playing, this is a hard one, especially for moms. Rather than whining when knocked down by a playmate, Boys need to learn to get back up and immediately get back into the fray. Uh, This is a much more noble way to build boys than to spend hours desensitizing themselves to real pain by blowing the heads off of dozens of nameless enemy with a flick of a wrist just to score points in a video game. Boys should be taught to stand up for what is good and honorable to protect their sisters and any girl as well as the weak and vulnerable. They must learn at an early age to be strong, courageous, and good, sacrificing their own desires for the good of others. We're going to switch gears now. Wisdom. The Proverbs describe wisdom as a great lady who disciplines boys. And if he heeds her counsel, he will grow up with a good measure of wisdom. So at an appropriate age, boys must learn the masculinity of study, 
learning, and the application of intellectual discussion in pursuit of dominion and the other goals of manhood. So if an outdoor, outdoor boy, like we've described already, sees book learning as less than masculine, he will put aside poetry and art. He may dismiss the importance of the, his communication skills and logic, which is essential to rhetoric, which is the art of persuasion, not to mention compassion, all of which are so necessary to sowing the seeds of the gospel and perhaps reaping a harvest of souls. First Peter 1 calls for intellectual discipline when Peter addresses the trial of our faith in the Christ we do not see, yet we love and believe. He tells us to gird up the loins of your mind. Be sober and hope to the end for the grace that is to be brought unto you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, young boys often resist the discipline of the educational process. When our firstborn was starting school at home, Christy thought it might be a good idea to teach him how to read. However, he fought tooth and nail out of stubbornness or maybe just because he's a Vincent. So she backed off. And with a combination of some phonics and reading to him and just laying some enticing books around, eventually he started to pick them up and he got an interest in learning. Hebrews 12 tells us that no discipline seems pleasant at the time, rather somehow painful. However, it later yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who are trained by it. The discipline of study can be really hard for a boy, especially when he can hear other boys outside playing kick the can. That'd be old school. Today it would be their cell phone notifications going off, unfortunately. Yet boys must learn the discipline of being teachable, studious, and thoughtful. Finally, men are made to bear the glory of God. Okay, 1 Corinthians 11 tells us, for a man ought not to cover his head since he is the image and glory of God, but woman is the glory of man. For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. That is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. For as woman was made from man, so man is now born of woman. We work together as one. So woman reflects the glory of God by reflecting the glory of man, her husband, whose glory she is. Now, this is definitely not a reigning philosophy of our day, but this is what the Bible says. And to review, in verse 3 of that same chapter, Paul says, I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ. The head of the wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. So submission and equality are not mutually exclusive. Paul says again in Ephesians 5, For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of, and Savior of the church, his body. We said last time, this is not a competition. It's a difference of roles between equals before God. Uh, not, just not just by the way that men and women are made, but they reflect different kinds of glory. Uh, and these differences allow the two to complete one another in their marriage and to serve as one. 
So it is the responsibility of both parents to train boys to reflect God's glory, to mature and fulfill their responsibility to be representatives of Christ, responsible for what they do, for what they say, for what they think, so that no one will despise them in their youth. Instead, they are to set examples for believers in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, and in purity. So to sum up, let me just mention this last thing. As I've said before, these views I've expressed today are countercultural, and I would not invite the wrath of the culture on myself or this church if I did not believe this is what the Bible says. Speaking again in generalities, most of our daughters will become wives and mothers, and most of our sons will become husbands and fathers. So it's vital that we prepare them for those particular callings. First, we all each individually need to recognize who is my authority. Is it the culture? Is it myself? Or is it the God of the Bible? And if the latter, we need to celebrate the scriptures that differentiate the callings of men and women, of husband and wife, and pass that on. But you yourself, some of this may be really hard for you to hear, okay? I just encourage you to be a good Berean. Study the Bible. I put some passages on uh, the, the handout that you can look at, and you can look at the whole Bible and help me understand if I've got it wrong. But I think this is, I sincerely believe deep down, this is what the Bible teaches. Moms, do not be afraid to openly use that word submission in front of your kids to describe the way you joyfully follow your imperfect husband's loving initiative and care. Dads, allow your sons and your daughters to witness the way that you look to sacrifice your own interests for the benefit of their mother as an expression of the humility of Christ. Be a living example of self-denial for your other half. Now, if you take this path, you're going to be at risk of being labeled as a groveling subservient or a tyrannical ruler, respectively. So, would you stand with me? And uh, let's recall Peter's exhortation after he expressed this very teaching, which were countercultural in a male-dominating society in his day. All right, here we go. Now... Who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect." having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. For Christ also suffered once for sin, the righteousness for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made